inside and are coming up high. Hi, everybody. Thank you for the warm welcome. Some 2,000 years ago, an old Hebrew king sat in his palace one day, worried, worried, and concerned. You see, he had committed his troops to a battle with the enemy, and he was worried about the outcome of that battle. And so he waited patiently for a messenger, a courier, to come and bring him word as to how the battle was going. After a while, he began to pace the floor impatiently, every now and then looking out the window to see if he could spot a messenger running toward him. And finally, after a long period of time, he saw on the horizon out there a messenger coming toward the castle. In a little while, he arrived, and he burst into the presence of the king, and he shouted, Good news! Good news! The battle is going in our favor. Now, the king replied to him, How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who bring good tidings. I'd like to paraphrase that answer a little bit this morning and say, How beautiful upon the ocean front are the feet of those who bring the good news about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to thank the committee for inviting me to share with you in proclaiming the good news that Alcoholics Anonymous works, and that is a program through which lives are transformed, through which faith is restored in those who have lost faith, through which hope is renewed in those who had no hope through which courage is given to the weak and through which strength comes to those who worry. I thank God for the privilege of being here this morning. And I thank the committee for inviting my wife and myself to be here. You know, every time Alcoholics Anonymous people get together, whether it's at the group level or at the state level or at the international level or where just two or three get together for a little informal meeting, there's always a spirit of joy and laughter. A while ago, as I was waiting for this meeting to begin, and as you were coming in and getting your seats, all you should have heard the laughter and the joy, and you should have heard the chatter that was going on, which signified people who felt good about themselves. And I'm thankful for that because that comes out of this program about the Hodge Anonymous. I'm thankful too for the fact that, you see, I believe this happens because God reveals himself to us in AA meetings and at whatever level. He also reveals himself to us in the group conscience, and he reveals himself to us in individuals. And my wife and I did not get here until Friday afternoon, about 4, 4.30, something like that. So we had not been able to attend the meetings prior to Friday evening, but we were here for Friday night. And I listened to Sandy B. as he gave us a very brief and concise history of the beginnings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and how the seed was planted originally in the Oxford movement and then moved out from there. And as I listened to Sandy and listened later to his wit and wisdom, I realized that God was revealing himself to us in Sandy Beach. And yesterday morning, as Blanche came with her honesty, telling us about her life and the things that had developed in her since she became a member of Alamon, God was revealing himself to us through Blanche. And then last night, as Johnny talked about coming from San Quentin to a place where he's at peace with God and with himself and able to hold his head high and to feel good about himself, God was revealing himself to us in Johnny Harris.
now at this moment. If by chance your spirit meets my spirit, and if both of them are held in the clasp of the Master's hand, it just may be that God will reveal himself to us once again. I pray that that will be the case. I told you a while ago I'm a recovering alcoholic. I like to add two other words to that, and when I add these two words, some people get a little nervous, a little excited, and a little shaky. I hope if you find yourself getting nervous, you just go ahead and shake. Don't worry about it. Because the words I want to add are, so what? And I want to say, I'm a recovering alcoholic, so what? And when I say that, some folks in AA do get a little upset because they, they feel like I'm trying to downgrade the illness of alcoholism, trying to make light of it. And of course, that's not at all what I mean to do. When I say I'm a recovering alcoholic, so what? I'm saying it to remind me of some things that I want to remember. I'm saying it to remind myself of the fact, first of all, that the society in which I live is not a totally alcoholic society. Now, we're moving rapidly in that direction, I realize that. <laughs> we're not totally an alcoholic society. And this society that is not yet totally alcoholic will accept me as long as I am a recovering alcoholic. This society did not accept me in my act of alcoholism. So I say I'm a recovering alcoholic, so what? Because of the fact that I am in recovery, the people around me, whether they're in AA or out of AA, accept me for what I'm able to contribute. I say I'm a recovering alcoholic, so what, for another reason. You see, I'm one of those guys who who likes to slip out from under the restraints of, of responsibility. When people begin to lay heavy responsibilities on me, the first thought that comes to my mind is, uh, there must be a, a softer way, an easier way out. I begin to think to myself, wait a minute, uh, don't you know I'm an alcoholic? I can't do that. You're placing all kinds of responsibilities on me. When I hang the label alcoholic on myself, and I do hang that there very securely, when I hang that label of alcoholic on myself, I don't want to forget the fact that I am a responsible recovering alcoholic. I am a responsible member of a society which now accepts me. I am a part of a society from which I was just apart from for so very long. So I say I'm a recovering alcoholic, so what? And I say I'm a recovering alcoholic, so what? For another reason. Because you see, I believe that life is the greatest drama that has ever been created. And I can recall in my act of alcoholism that there were moments when I thought about the future, and I thought about the time when, when the curtain would fall on the drama of my life, and I would stand before the great director of the drama, and I can imagine him saying something to me, something perhaps like, uh, Art, I handed out roles for everybody to play in the drama of life, and you didn't get to play your role. What happened? And I found myself trying to make excuses by saying, well, well, I, I was trying to determine exactly what my role was. I was trying to decide exactly what it was you wanted to do with me. I was rehearsing. I was getting ready. And then I would hear him say, but Arch, now the curtain of the drama of your life has fallen, and you didn't get to play your role. But now, because I've had the privilege of being a part of this program for several 24-hour periods. And as I grow older, I'm 72 now, as I grow older, I think perhaps even more often of the fact that in a not-too-distant future, the curtain will fall on my life and the drama will end, and I will stand before the great director, 
And this time my mind says, the great director will look at me and say, Art, there were never too many starring roles in the drama of life. There were never too many great actors in the drama of life, and you certainly were never one of them. But there, there were many supporting roles, and I assigned you one role after another, and you failed one role after another until finally you, you came into the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you found a role in which you were comfortable, and you played that role, and although it was a minor role, you played it well. So now, welcome home. So I'm a recovering alcoholic. So what? Life goes on, and I want to be a part of life as it goes on. The big book says that our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened to us, and what we're like now. And so using that as a framework, I want to share with you a little bit about what I used to be like, what happened to me, and what I'm like now. When I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous on April the 25th, 1960, 37 years, 4 months, and 12 days. Under other circumstances, I'd give you a phony name. I might even say that I was an FBI man. I worked with the CIA. Uh, any other a thousand different aliases that I would use under one form or another. But I didn't know me. I knew my name, but I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what made me tick. I didn't understand why sometimes I felt so inadequate, so weak, why sometimes I felt so lonely and so disassociated from people. I did not understand the anger that sometimes dwelled up within me. I just didn't know me. And you have taught me in this program that if at any time I don't know who I am, then I have no idea of whom I might possibly become by God's grace and because this program works. When I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, not only did I not know who I was, but I did not know where I was going in the business of living. I was just sort of like a, sort of like a ship tossed out on a mountain stream. If you've ever stood by the little stream and saw a, a little chip or a broken piece of limb caught in the current of that stream, carrying it downstream every now and then, you know, the, the limb would get caught against the bank and it would just flutter there for a few moments, held by the water, and then the water would be strong enough to tie it loose and it would go on downstream a little further. That's the way it was with my life. I was just going along with the tide. Wherever the current carried me, that's where I went. So I didn't know where I was going in the business of living. I had no center. I had no sense of direction. I had no goals in life at all. I did not know where I was going. Now, if at any time you've taught me, if at any time I don't know where I'm going in the business of living, I might get to the place I'm supposed to be, but I wouldn't recognize it, and that would be a tragedy. What else was it like for me? I went around in circles a lot. I uh, thought that this was great because the circle I traveled in was pretty fast. I suspect this is true for many of us. I kept going around and around, 
and faster and faster and thinking I was going somewhere. But I was really just going around in circles. It kind of reminds me of a family that I know back in my part of the country who took their vacations out in the Midwest and the Far West. And one year when they went on vacation, the old boy bought a new car just before they left. When they got out in the state of Iowa, where this, the roads are as straight as an arrow, this boy thought to himself, now this is a good opportunity for me to find out just how this old car will run. And so he put the pedal to the metal and roared down the highway at a great rate of speed. And every now and then he'd make a right turn. And he'd go a little further and he'd make another right turn. And go a little further and make another right turn. And further still and make another right turn. And this went on for a couple of hours. Finally, he realized, I'm beginning to see the same thing over and over again. And he turned to his wife and said, Honey, I hate to tell you, but I, I, I think we're lost. And she smiled at him and said, Well, dear, I knew that all along. But we were making such good time, I didn't want to say anything about it. Well, that's the way it was with me. Going around in circles, making good time. And I thought, therefore, I must be going somewhere. But I was just traveling in a circle. You know, the real tragedy of traveling in a circle for me was that as I traveled in my circles, the circle kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller because I kept cutting people out of my life. There were those who were reaching for me. There were those who wanted to do something that would help me. They didn't know how, but they cared. They wanted to express their care for me. But I would look at them and say, you don't know anything about me. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't understand me. There's nothing you can say to me that's going to help any. And I would cut them out of my life. And the circle kept getting smaller and smaller as I kept cutting people out of my life. Until one day I realized I'm standing in the center of the circle and there's nobody there but me. And when you stand alone in the center of the circle, it's not a circle anymore. It's a noose around the neck. And it's choking the life out of me. That's what was happening with me. So I went around in circles a whole lot. Well, what else was it like? I wore a lot of masks. I had a, I had a mask for every occasion. When I went to church, I put on my holy, sanctified, pious mask. I wanted to impress the people. I wanted to impress the minister. I wanted them to look at me and say, you know, that man's committed. He's committed to the faith. He's committed to the Christian way of life. And sometimes I fell off a pew. And, you know, they would look at me. But I put my mask back on after getting myself up off the floor. And they would say, yes, he's, 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 he's good, he's committed, he's committed. And I felt like my mask was working. I had a special mask that I wore when I went home after being drunk for a week or ten days. A mask that would get me in the door when my wife came to the door. I had a, another mask that I put on when I went for employment. And I don't know about you and your act of alcoholism, but if yours was anything like mine, employment was a bad thing. I had, I had trouble holding jobs. There was always come that time when either I got fired or I could see it coming and I quit. And so this keen alcoholic mind devised a way around this dilemma. I finally discovered if you don't want to be in trouble with your employer, don't look for a permanent job. Always look for temporary employment. Because you know, most any boss will put up with you for two or three months. And you can stand most any job for two or three months. And so this began to be my habit, my way of operating. And I recall that one summer I was looking for this temporary employment. 
And I saw in the local Richmond newspapers that the city of Richmond was looking for temporary employees for the summer. And so I went down to apply for one of these temporary positions. When I got down to the old city hall, the man gave me an application, and I looked it over and began to fill it out and had the usual questions that were being asked in those days. Uh, your name, your weight, your height, the color of your hair, and so on. And he got down about three-fourths of the way down the page, and it says, have you ever been arrested? And then in parentheses, it said, disregard minor traffic violations. And so I wrote down no, and went on down and finished the rest of the, of the questions. And the man came over to pick up the application, and he looked it over, and I could see him smiling. And I thought, boy, my mask is working. I know this is going to be okay. I've got this job. And he said, Mr. Grimm, this looks good. It really does. I just need to check a couple of items, but I'm sure everything's all right. I said, fine, thank you. And he went back over and he picked up the phone and he made a phone call. And, you know, I couldn't understand what was being said on the other end of the line. All I could hear was what he said. And I heard him give them my name. And a few moments, uh, I began to see a change take place in this man. And see, so he listened to what was being fed to him from the other end. That smile that was on his face disappeared. A frown began to come across his brow. And he looked over his shoulder at me as if I were some sort of something that had been drugging off the street. And I think I thought to myself, something, something's wrong. My, my mask must have a crank in it somewhere. And in a few moments, he hung up the phone and he came back over to me. And he was obviously angry. And he threw that application form down in front of me and he said, Mr. Grant. I said, yes, sir. He said, this application. I said, I, I see that. He said, uh, well, down here where it says, uh, have you ever been arrested? I said, yes, I see that. He said, uh, you've written down no. I said, that's correct. And he said, what do you mean that's correct? I've been talking with police records across the street. They tell me you've been arrested 14 times in the past 12 months for being drunk right here on the streets of Richmond. I said, well, that's true. He said, that's true? If it's true, why did you write down no? I said, well, it says there, disregard minor traffic violations. And so I figured if you're going to disregard those, Surely you're going to disregard anything as minor as being drunk in public. <laughs> and he said no. <laughs> and I didn't know how to handle that answer. And so I walked down the stairs and across the street to the Greyhound bus terminal. And I made it 15 times in 12 months. Because that's the only way you know how to handle it, by drinking more. Well, what else did it used to be like? I stood often at the brink of despair. I used to sell insurance. Now, mine was a very, very interesting kind of insurance. It was weekly debit with weekly premiums. The premiums ranged from 25 cents to a dollar. And I had an all-black debit. On the south side of the river, I lived on the north side. Every morning, I'd catch a bus and go across the river and go into my favorite watering hole. And I'd sit there in the stool all day long, and when I began to feel a little uneasy on my feet, I'd move into a booth and I'd drink wine. Sauterne and Burgundy were my favorites. I'd sit there and drink this wine all day long. And you know, most insurance collectors collect their debit during the daytime. Not me. I collect them at night. And so at 11 o'clock, I'd get one more bottle of wine to take with me, put that bottle under one arm, my insurance book under the other arm, and go out into the night and begin to collect my debit. You get some strange reactions when you knock on doors at 11.30, 12 o'clock at night, and you hear a muffled voice from the interior saying, Who's there? And I say, Quaker City man, get your butt over here. 
and sometimes they let me in. And oftentimes when they let me in, we shared a drink together. And oftentimes I also wound up on the kitchen floor. Sometimes I wound up under the bed. I could never quite figure out why I was always lying under the bed, but never on the bed. But then there were other times when I wasn't making very good headway in collecting my book, and I'd finally give up, and I'd go back across the river to where I lived. But you see, but then the buses had stopped running, so it was up to me to walk my way across the river on the bridge, and I'd go across this old bridge, and, you know, I'd look down off the edge of the bridge, and I'd hear the water rushing below and smashing against the rocks. And if it was a good moonlight night, I could see the foam that, that would result as these waves crashed, uh, crashed into the rocks. And a thought would come to me, Art, you're so miserable. Why don't you just dive off the edge of this thing into the water below, and it would all be over. Now, Sigmund Freud, who is the father of modern-day psychiatry, says, we all have a death wish within us. That may be true. But God, as I understand him, has also placed a wish to live within us. And my wish to live was stronger than my wish to die. And I thank him for that every day of my life. And so I go on across the bridge to my side of the river. Yes, I stood often at the brink of despair. What else was it like? I built a lot of prisons. Now, I don't mean I was a construction man. I can't even drive an ear without busting my thumb. But I built prisons of the mind. And believe me, prisons of the mind are far more strong and secure than prisons built of stone and steel. For instance, I built a prison of fear. My grandfather raised me, a Methodist minister, and he believed that alcohol was evil. He believed that those who drank alcohol were in a handcart going to hell. He told me this. He also said to me, you come from a fine family. The Graham name is an honorable name. And when you go to school, I don't want to see anything but hundreds and A's on your papers. And if I don't see hundreds and A's, that old razor strap that hangs on the kitchen wall is going to be applied to your family. And so I built a prison of fear, the fear of failure. And I learned real early that I wasn't too smart. In school, I didn't hesitate to cheat. I looked at somebody else's paper, and I thought they were a little smarter than I was to get the answers. Because I did not want to face the possibility of using that radio strap when I got home. So I built a prison of the fear of failure. But see, right along beside this prison, I built another one. The prison of the fear of success. Because I see, I learned very early that the more I was able to do, the more would be expected of me. Therefore, I built this prison of the fear of success. Then right between the two of them, I had my solitary cell, a prison of the fear of people. If you knew me, you wouldn't like me. If you knew the thoughts that were going in my mind, you wouldn't have anything to do with me. If you knew the urges that were part of my life, You'd cross across the road from me and never come near me. I wanted people to like me, but I was sure that they couldn't like somebody like me. I wanted people to love me, but I was sure they couldn't love someone like me. And so I became a people pleaser, trying to do everything in the world I could to get the approval of people. And it reminds me, 
back in the hills where I was raised, the hills of Virginia, down near the Kentucky-Tennessee border, was an old man and his grandson who lived together. They didn't have anything in the way of these world's possessions of any value except one old jackass mule. Ever so often, the old man and his grandson would get the old jackass mule out of the barn and it'd head down the road for four or five miles to the old country store to buy some staples, some groceries, sugar, and flour, and meal, things like that. One day the old man said to his son, Son, time to go to the store, get the mule out. The old boy went down to the old ramshackle barn and he got the old jackass mule out of the barn. And leading the mule behind them, the old man and his grandson started walking down the country road toward the old country store. And as they walked along, they met a group of people walking toward them. And the old man heard this group of people talking among themselves as they passed. And what he heard went something like this. Jesus, have you ever seen anything so stupid as that? There's that great, big, strong mule and both those guys walking. I ought to be riding that mule. And they went a little further and talked it over. And the old man says, you know, maybe they're right. Some of you get up on the mule. And the old boy climbed up on the mule and they went a little further along and met another group of people coming toward them. And they heard these folks talking as they went by. And these folks were saying, have you ever seen anything so contemptible? That young lad, strapping, strong, sitting up on that old mule while that old, decrepit man is walking alongside. The old man ought to be riding and the boy walking. The old man and the boy talked over a little bit. The old man says, son, maybe we ought to both ride the mule. So he got up behind the boy and they rode on a little further and met a further group of people coming along. And they heard this group of people talking too. And this group was saying as they passed by, have you ever seen anything so terrible? Both those strong, able-bodied men up on the back of that old stove-up, broken-down old view. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. And the two of them talked it over and said, you know, maybe they're right. Son, let's just carry the mule. <laughs> and so they got down off the mule. One got at the north end of the mule, one got at the south end of the mule, and they started carrying this mule down the country road. And they came to the bridge over the creek. And the mule was jerking and heaving and trying to break loose from their grasp. And just as they got out in the center of the bridge over the creek, this mule finally managed to break loose. And he fell through the bridge and into the creek. And he drowned. The moral of the story, you try to please everybody, and you're liable to lose your ass out of your donkey. never told me he wanted me to be a preacher, but somehow through the ether's waves I heard a voice saying to me, I want you to be a minister. And so I enrolled in a little college down in East Tennessee as a pre-ministerial student. A pre-ministerial student is one who thinks the Lord is calling him to great work, but he's not absolutely sure and he wants some confirmation. And so I enrolled in this school and there were five of us pre-ministerial students there, and each of us look forward to the days when we would get this confirmation for sure. To help us along the way, we had opportunities to go out and preach in small country churches. And so these other guys looked forward to this with a great relish. I did not look forward to it with all that much pleasure, because it meant my drinking had to be cut short. 
but I'd go out on my Sundays came along, and I'd go out to preach. And I'd get up and try to preach the best I knew how for somebody who had had no training whatsoever. And at the conclusion of the service, some good old farmer would come up and shake my hand and leave a dollar bill in it as he shook my hand. And he'd say, now, son, you did a good job. We want you to come home with us and have a good dinner. And I'd find myself saying, well, you know, I'd like to do that. But I've got this test in school tomorrow, and if I don't get back and study for that, I'm going to flunk out. I'm going to have to pass by the invitation. And I did this so I could get to the nearest town and get a drink. And then I get back to school and I feel guilty. And I didn't know what to do with this kind of guilt except to try to drown it, so I drank more. Uh, I love a prison of this kind of guilt. I love a prison of pride. I don't need you, God. I don't need you, wife. I don't need you, employer. I don't need you, friend. I can do it all by myself. I don't need anybody. And all the time that I'm saying this to try to convince myself it was true, deep down inside my stomach's churning, because I know I need something to happen that's not happening. So I build a prison of this kind of pride, and pride goeth before a fall. We know that. I build a prison of resentment. People were reaching out to try to help me, and I would say to them, you don't understand what's going on with me? How can you help me? You don't even know what's happening with me. And he and I hit it off together because his name was Art Grimes, and my name is Art Graham. And so the similarities sort of brought us together. And we became good friends. And one day, my friend Art said to the crewmaster, Pappy, why don't we do something different? We're out here now in Iowa in the farm country. Why don't you let Art Graham and me go out and hit these farms? That's where the money is. And Pappy said, all right, you want to try that? That's okay. So we took Art Grimes' car and went out into the country to the big farms to try to get some sales out there. And some days were good, and some days were not so good. On this one particular day, we weren't even making a scratch. And finally, Art Grimes turns to me and said, Art, I know, I know a sales pitch that never fails. And I said, well, what are we waiting for? He said, well, if we use it and the crew manager finds out about it, he'll fire us both. And I said, well, I'm not going to tell him. You're not going to tell him. How's he going to know? He said, all right. I said, well, tell me, tell me, what is this fantastic sales pitch? He said, oh, well, you just listen. He said, when we go up to the next house, let me get us inside the door. If we get into the parlor, you find a rocking chair, and you sit in that rocking chair and hum here, my God, to thee, and let me talk. And I thought, this is weird. But we ran up to the next farmhouse, and we wanted to go up restless. We wanted to show our excitement. And we go up to knock on the door, and this little lady comes to the door with us, beautiful smile hanging across her face, and her hair coiled up in a bun at the back of her head. And she opens the door and smiles at us, and my friend Art clips out this very official-looking document with our pictures on it, Across the top in big letters it said, Vocational Award Program, prize $500. So he introduces us to us and we're out of breath and he tells us we're so happy about our new job and we'd like to talk to her about it. And she invites us in. And out there in that Iowa farmhouse in the old parlor, surely enough there was a rocking chair. And I eased into the rocking chair and began to rock back and forth slowly, listening to what my friend would use as his sales pitch. And he began to say to this woman, that we were both sons of missionaries who had been killed in the Philippine Islands. And we wanted to pick up their work. We wanted to go back to the Philippines and do the work of the Lord. And in order to do that, we were a part of this vocational award program working for this $500 cash award. And when we got that, we'd be able to go back to the Philippines. And as he talked, I hummed an ear of my God to thee. And the tears rolled down her cheeks. 
And in a little while, she reached for her checkbook, and she wrote us a check for $75 worth of magazines. Now, in the farm country, we had one magazine that we really pushed, and that was the Farm Journal. Very inexpensive magazine at that time. It only cost $1 per year. We extended that lady's subscription to the Farm Journal. Some of her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren will be receiving the Farm Journal well, well into the year 2000. As we walk out, I'm smiling, and I think we've hit gold. This is going to be great. And just about the time we got down to the car, the thought hit me like a ton of bricks, aren't you? You just sold your soul. And I thought real rapidly. We've made 75, $75 sales, 10% commission at 750 at $375 a piece. Aren't you sold your soul for $3.75? Well, that's less than Judas got when he sold Jesus. And oh, the remorse was sitting in there. And you see, I didn't know what to do with remorse, except try to drink it away. And I drank it, and I drank it, and I drank it, till I got fired off the magazine crew. Believe me, when you get fired off the magazine crew, you just about hit bottom. So I built a prison of this kind of remorse. I built a prison of the inability to forgive. People who harmed me in any way or who I fancied had hurt me in any way, I couldn't forgive them. I couldn't forgive myself as I looked at my life and, and knew what I had done. I guess the one thing I've heard probably more than anything else from new people coming into the program is I can't forgive myself for what I've done to my wife, to my family, and so on. I finally discovered through this program that I can only forgive myself when I accept the forgiveness that the God of my understanding wants to give me. When I have this forgiveness, then I have enough left over that I can share it with somebody else. I can even give it to myself and forgive myself. I also go to prison of the inability to love. I want you to understand this doesn't mean the inability to go to bed with somebody. This means the inability to undip myself, to share the deepest thoughts and emotions that I had within me. To say to my wife, I'm scared. To say to my wife, I know something's wrong, but I don't know how to handle it. I wasn't able to say to her, honey, I love you, but I don't know how to really express it. I wasn't able to say to her, I'm sorry, and really mean it in a way that was helpful. So I built a prison of this kind of inability to just be open and be myself, be who I was, with the one that I love more than anybody else in the world. Of all the prisons that I built in my mind, this is the most difficult prison for me to get out of. And uh, even today, there are moments when I can't quite break free from this prison. Even today, there are those times when, when I get out the doorway and I think I'm free at last. And then something drags me back inside that prison cell. And I find myself still struggling with this inability to be totally open to somebody else. Because, you see, I don't want her to see my weaknesses. I don't want her to see the hurt that is within me. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if she sees all this, she may hurt me again. You see, most of us, I believe, this is my own opinion, have been hurt many times 
in our act of alcoholism. And we don't want to be hurt anymore. And so we're afraid to take a chance. We live in our part of the world in a macho world. All you young studs out there. You know what I mean. We like to walk around letting everybody know how macho we are. With our shirt unbuttoned down the front, a couple of gold chains hanging around the neck, maybe a bracelet or two around the wrist. And when it's hot like it is today, with the perspiration glinting on our muscles as we ripple them in the sunlight. <laughs> it's our way of saying to the world, I'm macho. I'm man. I can do anything. It's also our way of saying to the world, don't get too close to me. I don't want you to know why, what's really going on inside of me. I don't want you to know how I really feel down in here. It's our way of locking ourselves in a little prison. You know, it's interesting. Nobody breaks into prison. We always want to break out, but nobody's out there breaking in. And so we feel very safe and secure in this little macho prison in which we lock ourselves. And we are very safe and very secure. But we're also very lonely. And the loneliness will not, will not go away until the day we get the courage to pull the zipper down and let people see us just the way we are. With all the worries and the fears and concerns we have, when that happens, we become real. We're showing ourselves to another human being. Well, that's what it used to be like with me. What happened? I found my pig pen. You see, I believe that every alcoholic, this is my opinion again, every alcoholic has to find his or her own pig pen. And these pig pens appear in the most unusual places. Flush Fifth Avenue apartments, the ordinary home in which we live, under the bridges, down the railroad tracks. But they all have something in common. Every pig pen stinks, no matter where it's found. And I believe that every alcoholic has to wallow in his own stink and find his own pig pen. I guess you remember that old story that doesn't appear in our big book. It appears in the big, big book. It was told by a master storyteller. And if you want to go back home and find your big, big book, it's called the Bible. If you want to go back home and find that big, big book and look in the 15th chapter of Luke, you'll find that familiar story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son is that young man who came to his dad one day and said, Dad, why don't you give me all the goods that you would normally give me when you die? Let me have them now, because I want to go out in the world and make a name for myself. I want to stand on my own two feet. I want to be recognized as a man in my own right. And the father looked at him and tried to dispersuade him from that. But the young man was adamant, Dad, I want to go out and do this. Give me that portion of goods which you would normally give me when you die. And you see, the old man loved him enough to let him go. And so he gave his wealth to the young man. And he, the story says that he went into a far country. Now, there's nothing in the story that says he was an alcoholic. But I somehow identify with him. Oh, I identify with him so well. I see him going into this far country where he knew nobody. I see him drifting to the loneliest place in town to find a friend. And of course, that's the bar. I see him going into the bar and he, he sits down on a stool and he orders a drink and the drink is brought to him. He looks down and way down at the other end of the bar and he's another guy sitting down there drinking by himself. And a little while this old boy says, hey buddy, buy you a drink? 
little boy moves up to sit right beside him, and they have a drink together. And this young prodigal son begins to think to himself, how easy this is, I made a friend. And every day he and his friend meet there, and a few more friends wander in, and he buys drinks for everybody, and suddenly he's thinking to himself, all kinds of friends. Life is beautiful, everything's going great. But then if you remember, the story says that a great famine came in that part of the country, and everybody began to be in want. And suddenly all the friends disappeared, because you see, his pockets were empty, and he couldn't buy the drinks anymore. And this young man began to be in want too. And so he goes out looking for a job. Well, he didn't have any skills to find a job with. He'd been raised on a farm, that's all he knew. And so finally this Jewish lad slips out into the countryside looking for a job. And he finds a pig farmer, a Jewish boy and a pig farmer. And he says to this pig farmer, I'm hungry. I need a job, any kind of job. And the farmer says, I got a job for you. No problem, son. You can feed the pigs. And not only that, as you feed the pigs, if you're hungry, you can eat all you want of the same slop that you give the pigs. And this old boy began to feed the pigs to try to keep body and soul together. But then the story says, one day he came to himself. Now, we don't use that terminology in AA. What we say is, one day I hit bottom. Don't you see it means the same thing? Exactly the same thing. And so boy says, I know what I'll do. I'll go home and I'll say to my dad, Dad, I blew it all. I made an ass of myself. I've spent everything you gave me. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just take me back as a hired servant. The day came when I stood in the center of my big pen. And I hit bottom. And I said, I know what I'll do. I'll go home. Terrible drunk. Uh, started to give him his name. 
And I thought, well, yeah, yeah, I'll be honest about it. Yeah, I'm calling for myself. And he said, well, yes, we have this meeting tonight. Can we get here? Or would you like somebody to give you a ride? I said, I'll get there. And so I went to my first day of meeting. And it was like this, except a lot smaller. Some guy was standing up front like me, still in his guts. And I'm sitting out there where you're sitting, very comfortable. And I'm listening to this guy still in his guts. And I'm thinking to myself, war stories about drinking. If that's all there is to it, I can talk anything I've heard tonight. And if I can't talk it legitimately, I'll make it up. I went back to the second meeting, and it was the same thing, and it didn't mean anything to me. And so I went back to my third AA meeting. This time it was a speaker, uh, it was a discussion meeting. And this old boy, Jimmy Jones, dead now. Jimmy Jones was sharing the meeting. He had a long, bony finger, small group of eight or ten of us. And he went around the room like that, sticking out his finger in everybody's face. And they were talking about high bottom drinking and low bottom drinking. And he got around to me and he said, don't believe I know you, buddy. You got anything you want to say about this? I said, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. All I know is my bottom is dragging. Nobody said anything. A little tittering of laughter like we just heard then. And I thought to myself, they didn't hear me. They don't know I'm dying inside. They don't care anything about me. This AA is not for me. And so I headed for the door. And one of those strange coincidences took place. Just as I got to the door, a little man came up and took me by the arm. And I turned to look at him. And he had this beautiful smile on his face, and his eyes were twinkling. And he says, you're hurt, aren't you? I could have shot him. <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, you want to talk about it? I said, I think to myself, now what you going to ask me? Going to ask me how much I drink, where I drink, what I drink. And I don't know whether I want to tell him this or not. He said, come on, let's go here and sit down. We sat down in an old couch there in the clubhouse. And he didn't ask me anything. He began to tell me what it used to be like with him. What had happened to him? And what he was like now. And I listened to him. For the first time, the stuff I had learned in the seminary, I had finished two years of seminary at that point, the stuff I learned in the seminary began to make sense. They had taught me about being non-judgmental. They had taught me about love. They had taught me about mercy. They had taught me about forgiveness. They had taught me about understanding. But it all into so many words. Now I thought, listen to this guy undid himself before me. All the stuff that I had heard about began to take life right in front of me. That was April the 25th, 1960. I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since that day. Uh, that's what it used to be like. That's what happened. What is it like now? i got to tell you, I know myself a little better. I know who I am. I'm a child of God. But insight itself does not sobriety bring. I'm still going around in circles. Before I went around in circles, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Now the circle gets broader and broader and broader. And I've come this weekend and I've brought in new people into this circle that I've never seen before. I want to continue going around in this kind of circle. I don't have to wear masks anymore. I just want to be me. I just want you to know who I am. I want you to look and say, what I see is what I get. So I don't have to wear these masks. There are moments when I still stand at the brink of despair. But I have learned something from you. I've learned to stand at the brink of despair is also to stand at the edge of faith. And if you think of this speaker's stand as being the brink of despair, now I can stand here and I have a choice. 
I can fall off into the edge of the rule of total despondency, or I can take a chance and on faith leap into the arms of AA people. I choose to take the leap of faith. I don't build prisons anymore. I build bridges. I've learned from you a marvelous thing. A good builder can take the same materials and build either a bridge or a prison. That depends on what blueprint he follows. And so I take all those fears and all those worries and all those concerns that I had before, and instead of building prisons with them, I build a bridge. Prisons isolate me from you. Bridges connect me with you. But I have a funny feeling about bridges. I don't like swinging bridges. I want my bridges to be solid and secure. And so my bridge is built on three major supports. The central support is God as I understand you. The support of the bridge on that end is you, alcoholics and office. I'm not worried about the central support because God never fails. I'm not worried about that end of the bridge because you won't fail me either. All I got to worry about is mine of the bridge. And if I just take these 12 steps and use them and let them use me, I don't even have to worry about this end of the bridge. That's what it used to be like. That's what happened. That's what it's like now. How do you close? By a story that I've been using for 36 years. Some of you are old enough to remember World War II. All of you don't remember it. But if those of you who do and those of you who read about it, you'll recall that during World War II, our bombers just wreaked havoc all over Europe. We destroyed industrial uh, centers one after the other. In the process of destroying an industrial center, on one occasion, our bombers leveled the little village church to the ground. At the end of the war, the people in the village came to the village priest and they said to him, Father, now that the war is over, we want to see our, our church come alive again. We want to see it rise from the ashes and be the place of beauty and worship that it used to be. And the village priest with tears in his eyes said, Oh, my people, I want this too. But we have no money. How can we possibly do this? And they said to him, Father, we've decided, we've been talking among ourselves, we've decided that we're going to bring to you every single thing we own or every single thing we get in the next several months or years that we don't have to have for our own individual needs. We're going to give it to you. You're going to sell it. We're going to take the proceeds from that. And we'll finally build our church again. And so that's what they did. They began to bring to the village priest everything that they didn't have to actually have for their own survival. And the weeks passed until there was one day enough in the kitty to have the blueprint drawn. And the months rolled by, and a couple of years went by, and there was enough in the kitty to actually begin the construction of the building. And a contractor was hired, and he sat in his office one day and made an amazing discovery. Even though many men had been lost during the war, he had no trouble in finding carpenters, or plumbers, or bricklayers, or stonemasons. But he searched all over Europe, trying to find three stained glass artisans, and he was only able to find two. And as he sat there in his office, he wanted to himself, what am I going to do? I've got to meet this deadline. I can only find two stained glass artisans. I just don't know where I'm going to turn to the third man. And as he thought about it, there was a knock on the door. And without even looking up, the contractor said, come in. And this little man walked through the door, unshaven, baggy pants, unkempt in his appearance. And without looking again, the contractor said, yes, what do you want? 
A little man says, I understand you're looking for a stained glass artisan. I'm one. And with this, the contractor turned his eyes toward him, and he saw this man standing before him. His eyes took him in from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. He saw that unshaven face, and he saw the unkempt appearance and the baggy pants, and he laughed at him. He said, you, <laughs> you're a stained glass artisan. And the little man said, yes, that's, that's right. The contractor says, what's your name? The little man said, well, my name doesn't really matter, but let me assure you, I am a fine stained glass artisan. And he tried to talk his way into the job, and the contractor wasn't too impressed. Finally, the little man said to him, look, I know you're in a bind. I know that you're looking for this stained glass artisan. You have to have one in order to finish this job on time. I'll make a deal with you. You give me a place to stay and three meals a day. Let me build the window in this wall. And when that window is completed, if you like it, you can pay me the same thing that you're paying this artisan who are building the windows from this wall and this wall over here. The contractor thought and said, this is the best deal I'm going to get. He said, all right, buddy, you'll be here tomorrow morning. And thanked him and walked to the door. And just as he got to the door, he said, this is one thing, sir. Uh, I, I don't like people watching me while I work. I wonder if you would arrange to have a curtain put over that portion of the wall over there where my window is to be. I'll just go behind the curtain and work, and nobody will bother me, and I won't bother anybody. And the contractor thought, I've got a nut in my hand. They said, all right, I'll do that. Just be here tomorrow morning. The next morning, the little man came. His first day at work, he stopped and he talked to the other two stained glass artisans for a few moments. And he disappeared behind the curtain. Nobody saw him all day. Every now and then, they'd hear the tapping of a hammer. And this went on day after day, week after week. Nobody ever saw him. Each morning he'd come in, stop and talk with the other two stained glass artisans for a few moments, disappear behind the curtain, and they'd hear the tapping of the hammer. Finally, the contractor said to him as he came in one morning, Today is the day that the people of the village are coming to receive the building. Aren't you finished with your window yet? And the man said to him, When they come, bring them around the other side of the building first, all the way around to where I am. By the time they get there, I'll be finished. The contractor said, All right. So the people began to pour in from the village, and the contractor took them through the building, and he pointed out to them the beautiful handwork that had gone into the woodwork. And the people said, oh, that's nice. And he said, look at this window. Isn't this window beautiful? And they said, oh, that is a beautiful window. That's a great window. And moved on down a little further. He got to the window down here in this end of the building. And the contractor said, that's a great window, isn't it? And the folks smiled and said, oh, yes, that's beautiful. Beautiful more than we expected. And they went around to this side, and the curtain was still there. And just as they got to it, the little man stepped out from behind the curtain. He said, my window's ready now. The contractor didn't know what to expect, but he had no choice, and so he pulled the cords, and the curtain swept back before them, and there before their eyes. The most beautiful stained glass window that any of them had ever seen. So beautiful, in fact, that they just stood speechless before it, just staring at it, and drinking in the dizzy of it. And finally, the contractor found his voice, and he said to this little man, Who are you, anyway? And the little man said, Well, I told you in the beginning. My name doesn't matter all that much, but tell me, do you like my window? And the contractor said, It's magnificent. It's just magnificent. Words can't describe it. If you won't tell us who you are, will you at least tell us where you've got the glass for this window? It's so far superior to the glass on the other windows. The little man smiled and said, yes, I'll tell you that. 
But you know, each morning when I came to work, I stopped and talked with the other two stained glass artists for a few moments. And as I stood talking with them, I reached down into their trash cans and I picked up the broken pieces of glass and the shattered fragments of glass that they had thrown away. And the window that you see built before you here was built from the discards of the other two stained glass artists. Well, that's just a story. But it's a story that says that God has to understand him working through you picked up the broken pieces and the shattered fragments of our Graham's life and put it together again in a way far more beautiful than I ever dared to dream was even possible. And that's why today I thank God for you and I thank you for me. The hour's over. It's time to go home. I know that we all want to leave and yet we don't want to leave. As you go, I would just simply say to you, there's no answer without tears. If you hear, if you hurt, don't be ashamed to cry. There's no peace without turmoil first in the soul. If you find yourself in turmoil now, Your gospel. Our peace will surely come. May he bless you with his presence. Thank you.